Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Tomorrow with Rovio. I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and today I'm joined by someone who has served as an inspiration to myself and most geeks I know, Neil Blomkamp, a film director, writer, and producer of acclaimed Hollywood movies and innovative short films. He's currently running his own independent film company, Oat Studios, in Vancouver. Thanks very much for joining us, Neil. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, Ben. And uh, yeah, let's, um, I mean, discussing cinema and game, uh, you know, convergence is always interesting. So I'm, I'm super happy to be here. Um, let's kind of start with the, you know, the softball. Like, can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you got into filmmaking? What was your background? When did you kind of decide, I want to, I want to direct, I want to tell stories, I want to, I want to make movies? Well, I, I've been obsessed with films as far back as I can remember. Um, I, I, you know, growing up in South Africa, um, my childhood was always, it always uh, sort of sp- spiraled around some form of science fiction, like whether, whether it was uh, films or, you know, graphic novels, um, imagery from artists that I like. I, it was, I was just always, I was just a creative kid, I guess. And uh, there was a point where I kind of, Hollywood felt unbelievably far away and really difficult to um, imagine working inside of ever from Johannesburg. I kind of just moved in that direction regardless. And and then when, um, w- when I moved to Canada uh, in 97, um, I started working as an animator in visual effects. And I think... And I think that that came out of the kind of, you know, when I was maybe 13, sort of 12 to 14, there was a massive boom of visual effects-based films that hadn't really existed um, in the mainstream prior to films like The Abyss and Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. And it started becoming like, it started becoming a a viable, real thing that you could work in, you know? So I, I kind of... Yeah, like as as a teenager, I started getting into three D animation, and it was it was always weirdly with an eye to directing. It wasn't. I never really wanted oh, to be an animator. Okay. Yeah, okay, I didn't. Okay, I didn't okay. want to be an animator or a VFX artist. It's like I a wanted... means to an end. Okay, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Was there like a was there like a a standout film for you? You mentioned the Abyss. I think I remember hearing you talk about that before. For me, I, I mean, I remember mine. It was absolutely Terminator Two. I mean, that was the movie. It was like, oh my god, I can't believe they did that on computers. But was there was there a movie or a scene maybe or some sort of moment that for you was like aha like I can't wait to try and do that kind of thing? Well, it wasn't it wasn't actually based on computer animation or visual effects. It was based more on the film. Like I'd say, like RoboCop as an example had you know a- as big of an effect, if not a bigger effect, on me when I was young, and that was stop motion. It, it was just that it, it, that computer graphics was the way that you could kind of express yourself in an easier way. I think. And, and so from, yeah, like from 13 or 14, I got, I got true space on PC, which was the first like 3d package I ever got. And then, um, by the time I went to Canada, I was, um, I was using soft image. Um, and so when I went, you know, from South Africa and when I got to, when I got to Canada, I started, uh, then using Lightwave. And the thing that was always the goal was to build entire scenes. It was like, you were set designer, you were the lighting department, you know, you were like the editor, you were all of these elements and it kind of let you create your own miniature cinemascape. 
Um, so that was that was really the goal, and that's why I kind of always viewed it as a stepping stone. The same way I viewed directing commercials and music videos as a stepping stone, they were all just ways to get into into feature films. We'll 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 tie back to this for sure, but it, it's almost like I hear the seeds of oats being planted in your thirteen year old brain, right? Where it's like, I I had this power, I had this little mini right. world that I managed to create, and I kind of had to bootstrap it all. What can we do to like help other people get there? with more yeah. tools, with more assets, with more, you know, inspiration and that kind of thing. So that's that's super cool. Do you find there's a medium that works best for you that allows you to tell your stories in the best way and 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 kind of help people see your worldview in the best way? Well, I I mean, I think the answer to that question really is it, it's not so much about the format of the medium, it's more about just the level of of artistic honesty that the piece has. So in in other words, that just means like, what's the closest you can get to just complete creative freedom, really? Um, because, it, you know, even if directors have final cuts and they're making pieces that they think that they're in control of, there's still millions and millions of dollars riding on something that if it doesn't make money, they're going to have a really difficult time making another film, yeah, which yeah, is totally. in, the, in the back of their mind. The film still has to be roughly two hours, you know, like there's all of these other constraints that that are at play that are never really completely discussed. So the summary of what I'm trying to say is if you have if the closest you can come to putting on headphones and sketching in a sketch pad or writing a novel or sculpting something. Um, where no one is really whispering in your ear and mm -hmm. it's you just doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. The closest you can get to that, I think, is what I'm striving for and what I, what I think in my, my own personal creative realm is just, uh, a good, is a good goal. The, the downside is that everything that I'm interested in takes millions of dollars to yeah. make. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's like, that's, that's the issue. <laughs> yeah. 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 Unfortunately, you can't communicate your worldview so effectively on a blog. No. It's a pity. <laughs> Have you tried? Have you ever tried blogging? No. 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 Well, there we no. Go. I mean, it would be interesting. I could yeah. give it a shot. Add it to the list of things you'll try and juggle. Um, all right. Let's, I mean, okay. Well, I mean, let's talk about video games a little bit. Um, so obviously um, there was Halo Landfall. And so it, it's 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 well known. You're, you're no stranger to uh, at least... Yeah, to, to, to working inside of game universes. Um, you've talked relatively openly about sort of being interested in games, playing games sometimes, mm. being a gamer. Um, can we just sort of talk about where video games fit in your life? Not, not so much as a creative, but as a player. When did you kind of get into games? Were there, were there games that stood out for you as being particularly mm -hmm. fun or particularly good stories or... or yeah, I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about just sort of video games and Neil and, and how do those things kind of play together? Sure. I mean, the interesting the interesting part of that is that there there is the playing of the games and just being um, a, a consumer or, you know, someone who, who indulges in playing video games. And then there's a separate part to that, which is coming out of animation and visual effects my my favorite part of the process of vfx is the creation of um environments and and assets and and characters not necessarily animation and motion but more um more of an immersive uh thing that you're building and so at the point that i started directing um commercials and music videos it was like 
there was a moment where the, the, the thing that I really loved doing in VFX was building environments and you can carry that over to building map levels, right? Or, or, so there, there's a, there's a sort of tapestry to the way that games are made that I really respond to and, and particularly games that have like a, a very well assembled, um, kind of open world, you know, whether it's, whether it's GTA five or something like, uh, anything, anything that allows me to, to get into the three-dimensional space that has been created by lots of artists is, mm-hmm. is highly interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's why I'm really interested in, in real time as right. well. It's for the yeah. same reason. So it, sometimes those things are not, they're, they're not really separate in my mind. I don't think that I really play games to unwind or something like I don't, I, yeah, at Oats for a couple of years, we went through like playing Counter-Strike every Friday evening where the whole, everyone in the company was just, just like playing Counter-Strike. Like- <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's my point. That, that was the, cl- that, that's an example of just playing games. Yeah. But, um, but I think that typically I don't, I don't interact with them on that level. I interact with them more on the level of like, if you look at control that came out recently, right? There's this like amazing brutalist architecture and they have real time ray tracing and it, it looks incredible. And I love the physics and the destruction of how the weapons work when mm-hmm. you're destroying some of the objects that are in the, in the environment. Mm-hmm. That, that I'm not really playing that to play the game or to like get to different levels or finish the game. I'm just looking at what the artists have put together. Mm-hmm. And part of that is sound design and lighting and like the immersion of being in that environment. So that's what I'm attracted to, I think. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think when I was younger, it was like, I mean, what at the same time as, you know, if we're referencing Terminator 2 and, and Jurassic Park, it's like Doom was as influential on me, you know, like Wolfenstein and Doom would be up there. And then it, that turns into Quake and Counter-Strike and Half-Life. And um, so it, it feels like I, I'm more in the realm of first-person shooters and kind of slightly more uh, open-world um, I'm, I'm less into strategy games and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like, things like Dota or, um, Warcraft or stuff like that. It just doesn't really. Yeah. So would you say that there's like a, I mean, if we look at your cinema work, there is a, there's a, a palette, there's a style, right? Obviously mm-hmm. sci-fi features pretty heavily and, and, um, I would almost call it, you know, sort of believable or kind of realistic or credible sci-fi seems to be a specialty for you rather than kind of, you know, sort of super distant future kind of you know almost magic kind of sci-fi your 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 movies always feel like that could almost be tomorrow like this just it's just on the edge it's just a few years away so would you say that there's a kind of a natural overlap in that palette of the kinds of films that you like to make and the kinds of games that you like to play like you like believable universes you like kind of credible uh, worlds you like it maybe with a little tinge of sci-fi but it's still sort of you know it feels arm's length it feels close yeah i think i think with the games it doesn't there doesn't need to be any science fiction at all i mean you know like even like unity put out this um this uh demo um like a couple of years ago or a year ago where it was just the woods like you were just in the woods right and it was real time and that's equally interesting to me like okay. i think i think what it is for me is like near photorealism okay. with I, I love physics simulation so anything to do with really good fluid dynamics or simulation in general um that that really is what i respond to so the the the, the paintbrush the layer that you're applying on top of that of of genre or design is sort of secondary to cool. what yeah to what the environment is and I, I think that's why i'm looking at it more like from the perspective of like a technical artist i yeah. think rather than just 
being immersed in, in a game that I'm playing. It's interesting. Like, I kind of expected you to talk a little bit more about story. And yet for you, story seems to sit very sort of firmly in the world of more kind of linear narrative where you've got control, you've got authorship, you can kind of, you know, Mm. tell the story you want to tell. And then games for you are much more this sort of artistic and, and as you were sort of saying, creative space. Technically, you look at them from a technical point of view and you kind of Mm -hmm. look at them from a sort of you know, how all the pieces fit together to create this experience, but not necessarily from a narrative point of view. That's really interesting. And I wasn't expecting that. Well, I mean, so I've spent, I spent a lot of time recently thinking about what you just described. And the more, the more I think about it, the more I double down on the distinction. And the Mm -hmm. reason, the reason is because um, I keep hearing about people talking about how to inject more, you know, like, like there's this constant debate with games and film where it's like, well, they're sort of converging and at some point you're going to have these sort of interactive narrative adventures. And, you know, like they always, they always use the word narrative story and it will be like, you'll be within that story inside of the, the simulated game and you'll sort of be living it out and stuff. And it's, I think that that's 100% incorrect. And I think that the way that human beings have spent the last, you know, 75,000 years or however long we've been homo sapien, we've been sitting around campfires telling stories. And like a lot of the backbone to religion is the same idea, which is the, the telling of narrative stories. And I think that really what is happening is that we're using narrative and stories as a simulation experience for ourselves to understand emotionally what happens when we do something um, outside of the realm of normal. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Um, I'm saying that in the, in the realm of game design, that I think that there's the potential for game designers to make the exact wrong decision, mm -hmm. which, which is that I think that where games are going is going to be, it's going to be further and further into the wish fulfillment realm, Mm -hmm. right? It's going to be like GTA five, that looks 100% real, that's like, you know, you're, you're dropping in like like some Steven Spielberg film into like a fully 3D immersive environment mm-hmm. and, and doing whatever it is that you want to do, whether it's robbing a bank, whatever it is. But the game designer is allowing a landscape for for you to, to essentially just live out whatever it is that you want to live out. That is 180 degrees opposed to the notion of being a passive audience member mm-hmm. that is receiving information mm-hmm. through the through the meme of storytelling mm-hmm. from the storyteller and the storyteller presumably has gone through an event or has a perspective on something that carries actual nutritional data it carries value to the person who's absorbing it mm-hmm. right so you can't blur those two things as soon as you give control to the person inside of the game they are the storyteller that's right yeah so why then are you putting narrative? I don't understand. Like, why why are you discussing narrative and story then? And it's like it's this constant merry-go-round that it it you know it seems to be disproved often because people play first-person shooters and they play games like Grand Theft Auto and they play things like Red Dead Redemption and it's like yeah because they're being dropped into a virtual space and they're living out stuff that they want to do and it's like that's the future of games in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So keep storytelling to a very distinctive passive experience where the hopefully the filmmaker or the author or whoever it is that that is communicating the ideas has something valuable to say and i think that's evidenced by films that do and don't do well you know where 
the the less um the less data there is that you're actually feeling and living and watching someone go through an emotional shocking experience or whatever it may be um the less real human condition based stuff is in there the the, the less well the film will do because it's ho- it's hollow it's wow we 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 jumped into the deep end of some of the media questions here i was trying to keep them sort of light and simple and we're already going <laughs> into into the rich stuff but um so let me just plant a seed and we'll we can we can kind of double back on it a little bit later on but i guess the thing that i'd love to just have you um dwell on as as we go through this is do you know speaking of video games in real time as as uh you know a sort of possible sandbox right mm-hmm. where um the person in control is the storyteller are there opportunities that you're excited about in terms of sort of using video games for you to kind of almost um, iteratively develop your own narrative, your own story, and sort of say like, okay, like I've replayed this bank robbery scene now 30 times, and if I go left, the story sucks, but if I go right, it's interesting. Now if I use a flashbang, it sucks, but if I call my friends, it's interesting, whatever. But you've basically built this narrative yourself that you finally, as a creator, sort of think, okay, now I've got something. I want mm-hmm. to share this, right? Is that some sort of hybrid? Is that some sort of you, you know, interesting use of the, the sort of um, benefits of games and the benefits of film to a storyteller like yourself to kind of create some sort of, I don't know, um, mixed experience? Right. I mean, I, I find games, I find the notion of, I mean, the, I guess the word games even will just disappear, but the notion of like a, a real-time sandbox, as you called it, um, I find it highly creatively interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are innumerable numbers of things that can happen inside of that space that would be really awesome, I think, to mm-hmm. make and also for audiences, you know, even for myself to go into it and, and play it. I think it would be super cool. But, um, but I do still view story or narrative is 100% separate from that. I yeah. think what you, I th- and this is my own personal opinion, but I think what I would be interested in injecting into that is the stuff that, that, that um, as a sort of paradox, doesn't work in filmmaking, mm-hmm. right? So, so if filmmaking is about emotion and about, and about story, but story only, only really in the sense that you're living through the emotional turmoil of a character and mm-hmm. you're wondering what effect that would have on yourself, then the things that are less viable in filmmaking is is actually the stuff that is the worlds that those films take place in. Right. It, to a certain to a certain extent they're just background right so um we don't think of it that way because we think of star wars as like this science fiction space opera and you you think of avatar as 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 you know pandora but um but realistically what's actually happening is that you're just you're just connecting with something that could really be placed in you know in any allegorical time or space and it's the characters and the story that drew you in so i think that when you when you prioritize the world and you prioritize like the feeling and the the sound design and the vibe of being in that place that's where you can go to town so it's like and and that's that's really cool you know Mm -hmm. that's that's an amazing um and i think you're just going to see more and more of of uh, of that kind of thing. Like, I think, it, yeah, what, what is it now? Like the new um, game, Cyberpunk 2077, mm-hmm. you know, that looks like you're stepping into 
a form of, I mean, it's not Blade Runner, but it's like you're, you're almost stepping into what Ridley Scott was doing in like 1982 in a sense. Right. But it's completely, um, it's a place that you can like walk around and live and breathe inside of, you yeah. know? And I think that is incredibly interesting. And, and the ideas and the concepts and stuff that can be injected into worlds and spaces like that is, is, is highly attractive to me. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, I think I know the answer to this. Let's just throw it out there anyways. Um, let's say, you know, whatever, Peter Jackson came knocking again and said, yeah, Halo's back on, you game? Or whatever, insert big game franchise X here. Um, and you didn't already have something on your plate, would you bite? It, it depends entirely on the game, I think. On, on And you know what I mean? Like, it just has to be something that you really resonate with. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, Halo's always... I've, I've just always loved Halo. Sure. I don't know what... There's something so cool about that world. Um, but, but my instinct is I probably would say no, though. Um, and it really just stems from the place that the the older I get, the more the more working on existing. I mean, I went through this with Alien, right? Like Alien, and to a lesser degree on Robocop, this happened to me. Where where it's like you're 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 dealing with IP that's out of your control, yeah. and like I spent a long time working on Alien, and the rug got pulled out from underneath that film. Yeah. And it's like I just it's not really about how cool the like like Halo being super cool. It's not, it's not about that. It's about the fact that at any point they can just shut the movie down, which happened to me on Halo. Yeah. I mean, I've gone through this process like a couple of times now. Like I'm not, I think I'm just not interested in going through that process again. Yeah. And that kind of, it, it taints the ability to get back into, sure. into something that would be a game-based film. So it doesn't mean that I don't love the concepts. It just, is just it the politics. Is it or is it, big IPs with lots of stakeholders and lots yeah. of baggage and luggage, maybe, you know, like Robocop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Ro Robocop actually was, was fine. Ro Robocop was, was, was good, but alien definitely alien, just yeah. got, sh got shut down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, I mean, Halo was so kind of that, that time in my life was, was really amazing because, and it was, it was hilarious because I had done the exact, what I just said to you, is what I had basically just said to myself. I was actually in New York on a, on a meeting for a different version of District Nine with a different studio, okay. and uh, and I got this call where it was it was my agent saying that um, I could go down to New Zealand and meet Peter Jackson and meet Weta, and they wanted to talk to me about doing doing Halo. And I had literally just given myself this like lecture about how following don't, don't this, don't. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but not that. It wasn't that IP. It was just like don't do anything. Yeah that you're that you're not gonna be you know true. yeah and so i went down and i was like within 15 minutes i was like obviously this is what i'm of doing course. yeah i mean i just i just have to geek out for a second but like peter jackson new zealand weta bucket list one two three for like mm -hmm. every nerd worth their salt in the world right so i don't think anyone <laughs> blames you for that one yeah. right it, like it doesn't yeah. really matter what I'm doing. If I get a phone call, I'm on the next plane to go to New Zealand and meet Peter Jackson and see where yeah, exactly. like it's, it's happening. Right. That's really cool. Um, okay. So, so, so let, so, so here we go, Neil, I'm, I'm building a video game and Neil, I would love you to come work on this video game. You can define your role. You can do any, this is hypothetical, obviously mm -hmm. you can do anything on this game that you want. And we have backing because it's, again, hypothetically Rovio and like, 
uh, we got money and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be huge. You can define your role. Do you want in? And if so, what's your role? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I, I definitely want in. And I, I think my, my role would be the same as directing. Okay. So I think I think the key would be to have a really good, like a really good team that's experienced, that understands um, exactly how to make games in whichever genre that you're working in. And and then from a creative perspective, um, it's kind of like, I guess it's similar to the, to the Hauser Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. At Rockstar, where it's like, a really good team is assembling something that they there is a steward of that project that is in control of the creative vision of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's what I would be interested in doing. That's cool. Yeah. I've I've worked with many creative directors in my life. Um, one in particular, maybe he'll be listening to this, Eric. If you're there, hi. Hope you're well. Um, he would often talk uh, and and reference you as a, as as a sort of example of someone who he felt probably had a pretty strong vision and pretty strong, uh, not so much control, but but ability to communicate that vision to a, a cast of sort of diverse contributors in order to kind mm. of row the boat in a in a in in the same direction, right? Um, right. And you know, on on a game development, I mean, we you know we built teams with 150, 200 people. There's a lot of there's a lot of people rowing the boat, right? You need someone who can really kind of beat that drum and keep everyone aligned and inspire them and motivate them. Um, and a, yeah. a strong creative visionary who can explain what they're looking for and help people kind of buy into that is it's needed, man. It's that role absolutely exists in games. So um, yeah, can't wait to play your first game. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if that'll ever happen. Yeah, but but I think I think film like film directors tend to the the way that the industry has I guess over a hundred years sort of coalesced is that there is there is this more dictatorial way that films are made. But games games seem to be a lot more um, flat, right? It's a much more of an egalitarian system where, I mean, I get, this is what I gather, right? But but th- it it seems less common that there are single creative voices Absolutely. that are very loud and it much more of like a community based system that builds the game. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm- I mean, it, there's all sorts, right? I mean, obviously um, not unlike film as the budget goes up, you're going to have more stakeholders. You're going to have more people, you know, with a voice <laughs> um, and, and you're going to have more conflicting views and and more need to have, someone or some ones capable of kind of cutting through the 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 noise and 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 keeping people on track um big games have creative directors a creative director might not be the same kind of you know whatever like exact parallel to a film director um mm-hmm. but there is there is um certainly some some commonality certainly some point there that is that is shared um and 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 cool. you have games where it's you know there is no director where it's five ten twenty people and everyone kind of has mm. equal say and it it's much more of a sort of communal you know wisdom of the crowds kind of thing and they they all work but I've yeah. never seen a hundred million dollar game where it was like you know democracy and like let's all vote on what we should right. do it, it doesn't generally happen interesting okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to learn more about how how the how the process works and how how games are made, um, and just yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, so games and cinema, uh, we talked a little bit about sort of 
games as sandboxes, you know, cinema as 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 a vehicle for storytelling and, and characters and, and people, games maybe more for environments. And we touched upon this a little bit, but I'd love to hear whether you have any more thoughts about quote unquote capital C convergence, right? Fast forward five, ten years, you said you think the word games is gonna go away. You know, what will gamers look like in ten years and what will I don't know, cinema goers look like in 10 years. What are they going to be experiencing, do you think? Is, is, are we going to see convergence there of any sort of description? Or, or do you think we'll, we'll continue to really have two very distinct art forms? Well, I think, I think that on the game side of that discussion, uh, that is the side which is constantly morphing and shifting and changing, right? And accelerating and how quickly it's changing. Um, so the 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 difference I think will be measured on the side that is the game part. I think that films are, and and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about why I think films and and books exist, you know, and why plays exist, which is conveying story to a passive audience. I don't see as much change at all in the, in the architecture of films over the next, while. I I think that there'll be progressions in the technology that we use to make films. And I think that there'll be technology usage that comes from games in the making of films. But I think that five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now, you'll still sit down and watch something that will be a passive experience. And you will hopefully either learn something emotionally or look through the audience, look through the director of the filmmaker's eyes as an audience member and see a character evolve emotionally. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that you're going to, I don't think that there's going to be a fundamental architectural change to that. So um, no to hollow deck, but yes to, you know, virtual production. Yeah. I think the hollow deck discussion is more again on the gaming side. I think that's where all of the really interesting stuff is happening. And I think that that's why, you know, I I've often thought that, that, films in the 21st century will kind of become like like books and novels did in the 20th century you know it's like books uh, completely exist novels exist people read them but they're not they they don't hold the same level of societal sort of cachet mm-hmm. as as it, you know if you speak to a 20 year old now it's like it's games and TikTok and like to a lesser extent, kind of Netflix and Amazon, and then to an even lesser extent, like films that you may see in a theater and then to an even lesser, lesser extent books. And I think that films, films will kind of end up on shelves in the same way where it's like, you may watch a film, you know, and get a book off the shelf, but ultimately you're, you're in the holodeck that you're describing Mm -hmm. um, as the primary 21st century um, mode of of sort of either interacting or playing or leisure time or whatever you want to call it so i think you're gonna you everyone knows like you're gonna see radical changes and acceleration on the game side and and that's why it's not really silicon valley but the kind of the silicon valley ishness of the games industry i think is where everybody knows that there's rapid acceleration and growth and change and like dynamism and and cinema is just sort of locked like cinema is just kind of what it is and it, it even has problems as well you know like if you look at covid and you look at theaters disappearing and you you the only things really that are seem to have an, a business model that's viable at the moment is things like netflix and amazon and apple and mm-hmm. disney so 
I, I think the state of films is not really in a, in a really great place, but it will stabilize. And it may also stabilize in a way where the idea of a two hour movie may slowly die off. You know, it could turn into things like Game of Thrones and um, True Detective, really, as much bigger movies, essentially, that have m- way, way more depth to them. And, and these kind of two hour bite sized chunks, you know, a lot of things that we think are static, that we think, have always been the way that they are, are often just the results of conforming creativity into the the parameters that technology requires them to be, you know? So, <clears throat> I mean, it's really interesting. You, you, you talk about television shows. I mean, all this time we've been talking about movies like as if they're the, you know, that's linear media. But of, I mean, of course, uh, the last five, whatever it is, 10, maybe even 15 years, I, I would say have been the rise of, of, of really, really fantastic television mm. um and gosh i you i probably watch tv shows three or four to one to movies now um mm-hmm. you know even, yeah. even pre-covid right and yeah there are great storytellers there there are great performers yeah. there there's great talent there's great you know great emotional yeah. arcs are, are you are you drawn to tv are you drawn to same question before about infinite budget or whatever whatever but now it's the game of thrones sequel you know or prequel are 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 you like yeah yeah i want in on that i i'm i think i'm still more myself i'm more drawn to films okay um i think i think that you know a lot of this keeps coming back to this core idea of of the campfire setting and really um there's the word myth and the idea of mythology i think is more applicable in a 2 hour setting than it is in something like game of thrones because there's this kind of Joseph Campbell-esque um, journey that the audience can go on. And if you get it right, there can be a, a thematic and emotional and character-based sort of climax where everything converges. And it's rare that it happens in films, but when you get it right, like the result is, is amazing. And um, even though you get much more character depth and you get you get a, a ton of, of other benefits um, in something like True Detective, it, it doesn't exactly work in the same sort of brainwave way that a, a very expertly assembled feature film works in. So, um, but they're both equally cool. And I also think that over time, like when you said in future, would people be using the word games? I actually am not sure about the word for films or TV. Mm-hmm. I think that that will just be some sort of blurred word that will mean passive viewing experience of media of any length. This, this is the thing that I was really curious about with oats, you know, like if, if we can actually eventually figure out how to sell our, our crazy shit um, somehow. Uh, I love the idea that there's no time limit really in any direction, right? Like you, you can make a five minute piece. You could make a 500 minute piece. You could make anything you want really. And, and that's part of stepping out of this, pre-encapsulated idea of how long things need to be because they don't need to be anything now other than keeping the attention of the viewer. That's really interesting. So it's like the, the major dividing force is, is passive versus interactive and kind of like all mm-hmm. other names will just sort of fade away because they'll all blur together so much. And yet... Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> and, and, and I think that you'll see like hundreds of different definitions within the game space of what, you know, each one of those uh, experiences will, will be like, but, but, and, and this is where it comes back to like on the film side of things or the TV side of things, those are, uh, those are locked in frameworks of 
you are telling something to the audience. And that I don't see how that's going to change. Technologically, the way it's going to change is volumetric capture. I think everything is going to end up being Volcap, um, which I just experimented with now for this the small horror film that we're making. And when that technology is like completely mature, that will be quite a game changer in the film realm. But I mean, I don't know how long that'll take. Can can you just for I mean, for the people who might not know what it is. Can you talk a little bit about volumetric capture and, and, and sort of real, like, like real time production, virtual production in general? Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that and kind of where you see that going? Well, I wonder where I, where I should start with that. I mean, so I guess volumetric capture is probably the right place, but if you imagine filming a a feature film or anything that requires cameras, you, you would, you would get your actors in, costume and hair and makeup and they would be um ready to be filmed and they'd be standing in an environment that was either a a real life location that you rented or you would be standing in a set that you built and you would set up your cameras you'd go through the scenes you're going to film and then you know rehearse them with the actors and then roll roll cameras and then later you edit that footage together you're obviously locked in completely into the cameras that you selected on the day. And several months later, when you're editing the choices you made on the day or the choices you made on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, the next step up from that is computer graphics that everyone is used to where uh, if you, if you, if you look at something like district nine, um, the aliens are clearly not real. So you need to have computer generated aliens that are in place and um, movies use the most common practice for doing this that movies use is a process called motion capture. Yeah. So um, this this assumes that the creatures that you're capturing or, or humans or whatever they are um, that you want the audience to view would be kind of bipedal. And so because they're bipedal, uh, you can use a human to capture them. So you put people in a bodysuit that has um, these these points that represent where the joints and the limbs move, and then you capture that data. Then later you have a, a team of visual effects artists that would build the creature or the robot or whatever it is that, that the motion that you gathered from your human actor would drive, right? So now you've, now your, your, your Terminator 2 style T100 or T800 is walking around looking and moving like a human, but it, in reality, it's a guy that was wearing a motion capture suit earlier on. So the, this really crazy step forward is this process called volumetric capture where you would bring an actor into an environment that is similar to a motion capture environment. So it's 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 a totally synthetic soundstage that has. I mean, we just what we just did now had 240 cameras, and it probably would be a lot more in future. But you, the whole environment is just caked in like a dome of cameras. And then now this is where it's different from motion capture. Instead of wearing your your gray lycra motion capture suit with a couple of dots on it your 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 actors are coming in in complete final hair and makeup <laughs> so they they're you're essentially doing live action capture yeah. like like you would be doing you know on your set or in your rented location you're doing that but you're gathering them as holographic three-dimensional video so you you can relight them later and you can refilm them later from any angle, from any perspective, with any lighting condition. And you can also put them into any environment that you want later. Um, so 
obviously that opens up things like a ton. And if you're putting them into computer generated environments, you have all of that flexibility as well. But, but the prob, the problem is that the tech isn't really, the resolution is like nowhere near, you know, feature film quality. I'm sure it's still just ridiculous, like terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data. Like it must be huge. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. It reminds me, it reminds me of VFX in the early nineties, what it feels like right. to me, because it's like, no one's really set up to be able to deal with it. But there, there was a studio in LA that we were going to be using, um, Metastage and COVID kind of ruined that for our, for our weird, small experimental horror film that we're doing. And <clears throat> so we built a studio, we built a, a setup here with, um, in Vancouver with, uh, Tobias Chen, who has a company uh, that does volumetric camera systems here. And so, and and we ended up having to supplement all of the computers that he was using just to pull the data off the cameras. Like we literally dropped off 30 computers to just be <laughs> able to, to, to like download it so that we would be able to shoot the next morning. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, I think our first day of photography was 12 it was 12 terabytes. So it's like, you know, 12,000 gigs downloading. It's like, okay, that's, that's a lot. And then you need a really fat pipe for that. You have to wait more than overnight for that one to download. Yeah. 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 And, and then you also have to, that's unprocessed, right? So now he, you, you have to go through the process of three dimensionalizing what all of those camera angles are seeing and letting computers just crunch that down. So it feels very, very nascent and early, but it's going to eventually replace the the, the camera. Okay. You know, it's just cameras will kind of, the single camera will go away. Well, so let's just take that logical extension, right? So again, let's say 10 years. So internet is mm-hmm. faster. Everyone has terabytes in their thumb drives, whatever it is. So, so, so data processing speeds and data storage have improved significantly. Um, you know, will Terminator 12 be built in Unreal? Uh, is, you know, is Unreal yeah. or Unity, are they the future of tentpole Hollywood, you know, big, big, big budget action, you know, cinema? Yeah, for sure. I think, I think that, um, the idea of, and it's really interesting to watch it because real time graphics now are sort of approaching borderline photorealism that you were seeing, you know, a few, like a decade or so ago, um, maybe 15 years ago in, uh, in scanline rendering. Um, so, so your old school shitty hour long frames that you would get are now rivaled by something that's calculating like, you know, the same amount, 48 times a second or 60 times a second. So the, the amount of, uh, what that means just, I mean, on on every level, really. Like, if you want to reformat something later, if you want the audience to be able to, in the behind the scenes, like walk through environments or look around, it's going to really, really be cool. But, but again, and this is where I think people get it wrong. I don't think that that's going to be applicable. In, uh, it's either a film or a game. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, it's funny. You know, take your favorite shot from any movie that you've ever made and um that shot you were saying earlier like you it's baked right it was baked in district mm-hmm. nine it was baked whatever 10 years ago mm-hmm. I, I can't, we don't even know when you filmed that but that shot was mm-hmm. baked the day you positioned that camera and said you know rolling mm-hmm. um 
And so I imagine you as a creator might kind of like to have the possibility. Imagine District 9 had all been filmed with volumetric, right? You might kind of like to have the ability to go back and kind of like release a remixed version where the cameras weren't quite so locked and you could have explored slightly different angles or slightly different, you know, whatever movements and, and maybe the characters reacted in slightly different ways. That's sort of like re mixing or, or or iterating on your past vision probably has some appeal to you. Maybe, maybe once it's in the box, it's done. But I can imagine there are some creators for whom it has some appeal. But what I can also tell you that is, is that me as a completely uninformed, but sort of inspired consumer, I would love to go in and remix that stuff. But not, I don't mean like learn to use, you know, whatever, like like Adobe Premiere and like learn to use Max or Maya and like learn how to model and learn how to light and learn how to do the effects and all of that sort of stuff. It's beyond me. I don't have the time, but mm. I can imagine a world where I could kind of go back and take a couple of minutes of let's say District 9 and because everything was remixable sort of say, and what if the camera was over here? Oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. And what if the what if the character moved like this instead of that? You know, pull some library of baked animations somewhere that were in the mocap library and sort of say, yeah, let's mm -hmm. have him react like this instead of this. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Okay, publish. Hey, Neil, what do you think of this? Look, I, I remixed your scene. Is this cool? Validate me, validate me. D do you see some sort of, like, was that kind of thing anywhere in Oats? Like that kind of idea of like, take our vision and and play with it and remix it and make it your own. Is that appealing to you as a storyteller? It It is. I mean, you know, there's there's several different uh, elements to your question or statement, but I think for if I speak about myself personally as as a director, I think I'm a lot less interested in revisiting something later. Yeah. Um, but that's me personally, right? Like I'm, maybe other directors would be into that. But if if District Nine existed volumetrically and you could go back and and reset up camera angles, the value for me is in the process of making the film. Yeah. And it's, it's, it means that at, you know, at 7.40 PM, when you're losing sunlight and you couldn't quite get a shot the way that you wanted it to look, you, you now have the option of always getting the shots to always look the way that you want them to yep. look. Um, but it, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the interview, where I, I firmly kind of stand by the idea that art should be as, as intuitive as possible. It should come from an emotional kind of burst and and I think when you make that film, it's like the expression of making it. That's what you're saying. Yep. And that's where you were in your I life that. at that, that point. Yeah. And it's like, that's what you should yep. make. But having said that, once all of that remixable data exists, um, it would be incredible to have to, to have the ability for anyone who's interested to be able to take that information and remix their own version, you know, like whether it's film school students or like what I would have been doing when I was 16. Like I, you know, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what I, how insane it would have been to get my hands on like a Jurassic park, you know, matte painting <laughs> with, you know, like who knows. So, and we did do that with, Oh, it's like we gave away the 3d assets and stuff um, as, as a kind of, nod in that direction because it does feel like decentralization of everything is sort of where human civilization is kind of naturally going you know it's it's naturally heading in that direction um and so what if anything can you say about what's going on with oats i mean i i i've watched all the episodes you know all the little mini shorts i, I would happily pay money 
to stay in any of those worlds. And I know I'm not alone. So, you know, yeah. I represent some group of sci-fi nerd geeks who want seasons two, or, or even, it doesn't even have to be a season two. You could pick any of those storylines and go further mm-hmm. than that and say, you know, Patreon or PayPal, like whatever, like put, give me a way to give you money to keep on making that stuff. And I probably represent a fair number yeah. of geeks who would say, take my money. So is that, is there more happening that's, there? That, that's the goal. I just think, I think that instead of asking people for money before giving them something, I, what I want to do is make more stuff and then say, will you buy this? And then let the, will you buy this pay for the next batch of, sure. of things? And it just, it takes a lot of resources, you know, to make the pieces. Yeah, so I, I, I first just want to make like another you know, whether it's one piece or more pieces. And then, but then I want to completely do it outside of Hollywood, like 1 million percent, like operating exactly like, like a game studio would sell something through steam. Um, I just find that really, I find it very interesting. It's very now too. It's very 21st Absolutely. century and I'm, I'm, it's where it's going to go. I think in some ways for creatives. And if, if we can just talk dollars and cents for a second here, or, you know, put our, our business hats on for just a moment you know, there's sort of two dominant um, uh, 20th century business models. Let's just say there's the a la carte, right? They're like, you know, oh, you want a little bit of this? You know, you pay a little bit. You want a little bit of this? You pay a little bit. So in video games, that's free to play, right? Um, and and then there's a subscription, which is like, you know, you pay and you kind of get it. Mm-hmm. You get everything that 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 can be created under inside of mm-hmm. a year or, or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about either of those as they pertain to enabling an artist, enabling someone like you to do what you want to do? Is one or the, one or the other of those more interesting to you? Well, I, I think that because, again, it comes back to this whole um, sort of narrative locked in passive experience thing. I think that what we're making has to be either a single payment for one film or a subscription. I don't think that it's really a viable... I don't think that there's enough of me doing micro transactions as a player, being able to buy different armor or weapons, whatever it is that I'm doing to, you know, keep the system alive when you're making passive films. So, so I think that, I think the kind of more, uh, micro transaction way of going, which is very game centric is not completely applicable to film in a way that I can see, unless you really seriously open it up, but then you go back to the same discussion about like, well, are you saying anything? Right. Then? You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think ultimately for me, if, if I really right now, it's just a cash thing because I want to maintain control of it. So I want to be able to pay from the stuff that we put out. And then when I put out new stuff, ask audiences to pay for it and probably take a loss initially and just be like, okay, well, that's how much we made. You know, I wonder if we did another piece, if we would break even mm-hmm. and kind of eventually if that engine can start, then whoever's interested in stuff that, that I'm making on this platform is paying for that stuff directly. Yep. It's just, I, I just find it kind of, I find it using a different part of my brain in a way that I really like, like there's an entrepreneurial element Absolutely. to like, to, and you know, when the first time that we did it, when we did volume one, we had like 35 or 40 people that were on staff and it was it was a really awesome kind of camaraderie of of all of us just making like this garage style underground thing, you know. And we had 
a really good time doing it. So I need to, I need to I need to kind of get back into the swing of things with those. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I mean, as soon as you're uh, ready to announce season two, um, I'll I'm in. I liked it. It okay. was really cool, and 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 <laughs> and I like. Um, I, I mean, so I would subscribe for sure. I, I like what you did with oats. I would definitely subscribe or pay per film or, or, or whatnot. And I really like that you guys tried to um, give stuff beyond, beyond that passive experience, something that I can work with actively, even if again, I, I I'm, I'm not set up to do it. Yeah. It's like um, a niche, very niche audience that needs to be, you know, either either filmmaking proficient or or even visual effects proficient to kind of take advantage of it, but that's all we can offer. You know, yeah, and I I guess um, I, I guess I just wonder if if you were to continue to do Oat season two, you know, is that that's still game? Like that's you're still oh, sure. into that? Yeah. Oh okay. no, one one million percent. Yeah. Okay. No, when, when I'm when I was talking earlier about just wanting to be a singular artist, it just means that that's my focus. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't mean that the more we can give give that stuff away. Um, if it, if it, you know, if anyone is interested, basically just give it up. Um, okay. Well that, that's great. And, 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 uh, I think, I think it's awesome that you, 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 you see the value in giving those assets to the, to the sort of community to, to remix it is, did, did anything happen with Oats one? Did any one, uh, create a thing with material from Oats one that made you, feel any sort of validation for the idea like yes yeah. it's working yeah i mean for sure like in terms of feedback from from the community we just the problem is we just didn't keep going because in order to keep going we need more resources and to get more resources we have to kind of go into a we have to go and get money that may just i don't know it may create more problems yeah so um the, the only downside really is not keeping going and it's yeah. like, so now it's, you know, I'm trying to put a plan together to figure out how to do that. I, I think, and I mean, this is, this is like, I'm not coming at this from it, like any place of business, really. It's more of just being creative. And that's why if you're going to, if you're going to try something like that, you have to be willing to just lose money yeah. and which is fine. I mean, I, I you know, the, that's, that's okay. But it, it just, it just takes a little bit of, of effort to make sure that you have enough to at least make good stuff. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ben. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and that's it for the first episode of Tomorrow with Rovio. Again, I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and I'd really like to thank you all for joining us. Now, if, like us, you're curious about the major themes that will shape the future of games and entertainment, stay tuned for more episodes and awesome guests in the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Rovio, you can reach out to us directly at podcast at rovio.com. And finally, shameless plug, we're hiring for a number of positions at Rovio across multiple studios. You can find out all about these open positions at rovio.com slash careers. Once again, thank you very much, and I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>